Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. <laughs> Gone with that mic in your hand. It's time for school. Rock school. With your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. Half of these interviews is not giving the book away. You know? As, right. as bad a human being as he was, why would you hand him such a major undertaking? Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show on the Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns, and nope, Tammy isn't here again this week. And if you're a sharp-eared listener to the show, you know that means we've got another author interview for you. This time around, it's Scott Shea discussing his new book, All the Leaves Are Brown, How the Mamas and the Papas Came Together and Broke Apart. Look, I found it fascinating. It is a well-researched biography of the band from someone who is obviously a fan. I had no idea the band was this dysfunctional. I mean, I, I knew John Phillips had some problems, but this is deep, man. If you're a music fan, you're really going to enjoy it. So, for an hour today, author Scott Shea on rock school on the phone with me scott shea the author of great book all the leaves are brown how the mamas and the papas came together and then broke apart scott thank you for speaking with me hey joe thank you for having me on the show i really appreciate it you're a satellite radio guy are you not i am yes i am i have been for many many years now so what got you into writing books usually radio people don't have the wherewithal to physically write a book Right. Well, I work in talk radio, so um, I was dispatched about eight years ago to uh, write uh, an audio documentary on Pope Francis. Wow. Uh, he was coming to America yeah. by my uh, program director at the time. And, uh, you know, it went really well. I really enjoyed it. It, it turned out well. And uh, they were so happy. They asked me to do a few more. And uh, I really enjoyed the uh, research and interview process. So, and I'm, I'm an avid reader. So I wanted to write a book uh, on, uh, on music. I'm a big music fan. It's really my number one passion. Uh, I read about it uh, vociferously, as they say. And um, I was uh, reading... Um, a lot of books on uh, you know the 60s 60s particularly folk rock Bob Dylan uh, I read a book on Gene Clark I had just finished reading a book on Paul Simon by Peter Ames Carlin a uh, real great book and I was very inspired As, you know my, I thought uh, well let me I like to read a book about John Phillips and the Mamas and the Papas and really couldn't find anything written in this century uh, so I was like boom there it is I got my <laughs> subject <laughs> excellent now look let me I have some general overview questions I want to throw okay. at you first of all I have done shows talking about 
this uh, the song Creek Alley and how it is a narrative of the life of the band. And as I read your book, I kept waiting for the names and the events told in the song <laughs> Creek Alley to come up. Did you find yourself doing that? Yeah, you know, it's, it's just a nice little guideline. I, I hope you weren't looking too hard for Swarthmore because that was kind of made up. Uh, but, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's... It's neat how that all kind of tied together. I mean, the song takes a few liberties, but by and large, it's pretty, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's their life, it's their band story summed up in three and a half minutes. Um, and I think they do an excellent job. And all those people were indeed players in in um, in how the mamas and the papas came together. So, yeah, it was a, you know, it, I, this is kind of like a creaky alley on steroids, as they say. I thank you for pronouncing it correctly. It is <laughs> creaky alley. It's not creek alley. And, and we'll get to... How in the world this band constantly showed up in, you know, Bahamas paradise. But mm-hmm. when I read it, don't get me wrong, I knew John Phillips was a bit of a not nice human being. I had no idea of the dysfunction in this band. It's next to insane. Did you know that going in? I mean, I knew it was going to be there. I mean, just by their very nature. I mean, the band only lasted like two and a half years. Uh, and even for the 1960s, even by band standards, that's that's really short. Like NFL players have longer careers than that. You know, the average yeah. NFL player. <laughs> you know, so um, I knew that there was going to be something. And I was familiar with, you know, the stories, uh, you know, I've, I've been listening and reading about music for a long time now. And, you know, you know, I, I remember years ago watching the behind the music on VH1 about the Mamas and the Papas. I knew that Denny and Michelle had a, you know, had a kind of like a one night fling uh, that, you know, with a lot of build up towards it. Uh, you know, I knew that Cass had unrequited love for Denny. I know that Michelle was, uh, you know, uh, unfaithful to John. And, and, you know, what I guess what I was really surprised at is, you know, John's first marriage. John Phillips's first marriage, how just uh, you know, really uh, how he mistreated his wife. I mean, I know they, yeah. they got married because they he, she got pregnant, and uh, uh, but those two definitely were not meant to be married. And um, uh, yeah, it, the, the, the dysfunction is really uh, really incredible, and it's amazing that they lasted as long as they did. John and Mitchie were getting kind of itchy just to leave the folk music behind. Saul and Denny working for a penny Trying to get a fish on the lead Cass can't make it She says we'll have to fake it We knew she'd come eventually Greasing on American Express cars But keeping out the heat Duffy's good vibrations And our imaginations Can't go on indefinitely And California dreaming Is becoming a reality Now, reading the book, it, it really does. You mentioned Denny Darty, and I want to talk to him uh, about him a little bit later on because he seems to get the least of the, the time in the book. But, of course, John Phillips eats up the first, I think, four paragraphs, not paragraphs, but chapters of the book. Mm-hmm. He's not a nice guy. What was it that jumped out at you 
when you were doing the research for the book, and by the way, I'm, I'm actually shocked you're not an academic because the book is that well-researched and it's got a full bibliography and uh, I believe a reference section. I, I knew for a fact you were a professor of something. And when, when I was told you're a radio producer, I thought, wow, he's not only smart, he can get coffee. So, That's right. Yeah. <laughs> what exactly was it that you learned about John that made you go, oh, man, that's, that's too much? Well, it's funny. Like, you know, uh, you, you, John really had his demons. But, you know, in the beginning, you kind of cheered for him. Um, you know, he was trying to really make a go of it and put his talents to use and really put something together. I found myself cheering for him, you know, and, um, you know, as he went into folk music and just his, has his success with every, every genre, every group that he put together increased, you know, exponentially until he got into the mamas and the papas and then it blew up and then really just kind of, um, how the success really just kind of went to his head, how he really became arrogant, uh, at least towards, towards Cass and, and some other, and, you know, some of the session musicians that, uh, that he played with, uh, like Phil Sloan and, and Hal Blaine and others. Um, and, uh, just how he just kind of, you know, the thing that really sh shocked me was how they, when, they got to the top, and I don't know if it was because of the mistrust that uh, each had because of, of uh, emotional relationships and thing, you know, emotional interplay and all that stuff, uh, but how they just kind of rested on their laurels. Uh, I think, you know, the Beatles and the Stones were extremely talented, and they made great records, but they also put the work in. You know, they, mm -hmm. they went out to the crowds. They went out and met them for, for years on end. They toured relentlessly no like not even a barely a free moment uh, of time to themselves and and even when they did have time to themselves they were writing new songs they were in the studio they you know they barely got a moment to themselves with their mamas and the papas it's like okay we made it um we'll just kind of <laughs> we'll hang out you know <laughs> we'll take we'll go first class all the way and really they didn't play very many live shows uh john you know over time he, he kind of dried up creatively uh uh, when it came to his songwriting, he was, you know, he was as talented, in my opinion, as Brian Wilson was when it came to ar arranging music and and chord progression and all the all those things. But he certainly wasn't as prolific as Brian Wilson was, and um, uh, just really just kind of it just once they got to the top, they just kind of coasted, and I think that was kind of their downfall. When you get to the end of the book. It is, it's probably nine-tenths of the way through. You talk about the fact that they had a record deal, they signed some kind of a contract to hurry up, get us more albums so we can sell them. You really do well outline this idea that, look, your, your songs are a block of cheese. We need more of it so we can sell more cheese. Mm -hmm. And they sold these two albums, and, I, you know, I didn't know them. I knew the Mamas and the Papas from the hits. And then when you get there, you talked about these songs in the garden and all of that. And I went and listened to them. They're not terrible. Now, don't get me wrong. They're not California dreaming, but they're not terrible. You, you say that John's creative process uh, sort of dried up. Now, my question to you is, is that what happened 
Or was it just the idea that this folk movement, the Bob Dylan, the birds, the what have you, dried up and the variables of society just went past him? Because when I listened to these songs, I thought, they're not terrible. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that has part a little bit to do with it but there are people from the folk rock movement who transitioned bob dylan being one of them right uh, he but okay so you know in 1969 68 69 he's not making the jangly uh, uh you know 12 string rickenbacker uh with the with the uh a hammond organ sound that he was not you know that you hear on uh, like rolling stone but he's he's gone into country you know, he's gone a little bit more back to roots, back to, you know, guitar, bass and drums and simple songs. Right. David Crosby, the same thing with Crosby, Stills and Nash, uh, even the birds. The birds weren't as successful, but McGuinn transitioned and he, you know, he brought in new players and they lasted until 72, 73 um, uh, with the Mamas and the Papas. Uh, yeah. You know, it, I think it's hard. It was once that turn happened which really kind of came around the time of the after the monterey pop festival you know which the which john phillips organized right uh and and music got kind of more sophisticated and heavier and uh, kind of more adult let's say it was kind of hard to kind of maintain a tra- to, to get into that idiom with a four-piece harmony group, you know, mm-hmm. uh, for a uh, four-piece harmony, I don't think transitions as well uh, with various musical movements. I mean, you could see it even the Beach Boys struggled in the late '60s. Uh, Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, the same thing. And then those two groups really kind of came back when there was a bit of an oldies revival because they had started off, you know, in the late '50s and early '60s, and they kind of fit fit in with that. Uh, the Mamas and the Papas never really did, though. Um, I think they they really John I, John had a I don't think John had a real tough time transitioning because when you listen to some of the the stuff like his solo album like the Wolf King album and and the uh, the stuff they put together for the Mamas and the Papas reunion album in 1971 I think it really sounds good but I think he was uh, just starting to get into drugs and mm-hmm. that was just eating him up and the, I think the le- the ener- the level of energy. Uh, and proficiency that he put into making music, he now put into getting high, and then eventually uh, into selling drugs and becoming a you know a drug dealer, and uh, which eventually got him into some really really deep trouble. So, uh, yeah, I think I think I think he could have had he not been so addicted and, and maybe not tethered to uh, a four piece harmony group. Yeah, I I have these conversations with my students. I teach a lot of history of music and all of that. And I have these discussions. Would the Beatles have been the Beatles had they came out in 1972? Mm-hmm. Would the Mamas and the Papas have been the Mamas and the Papas if they had shown up in 74? Yeah, I just, yeah. I think the greatest thing Mozart ever did was being born when he did. Right. Yeah, maybe if if the Mamas and the Papas show up in 1974, they might be the fifth dimension. <laughs> you know? I like them too. I like them so too. I. So now, I. that was you know that, and that was an outgrowth of Lou Adler. It's perfume.
What was it about every single member of the band? John cheated, Denny cheated, Michelle, Mitchie, cheated, Cass cheated. You're going to have to explain this to me. Was it just the time? I think it's just well, it's the time in that industry. I think it's a very you know, and I don't want to I don't want to paint every artist this way, but I think you you, be, you know since you teach it, you could probably the, the 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 amount of narcissism it takes to reach that level of of success and talent, and then you're surrounded by people telling you how wonderful you are, uh, and I'm you know I don't know based on your moral code or your upbringing. Um, is how you respond to that and it just seems it just seems to happen a lot you know in that industry um you know as we see uh, hollywood and and it's kind of the same thing it's just i don't know i guess you just kind of get caught up in it um kind of what's what especially in in that uh, uh take it easy take it as it comes you know uh era of the mid to late 1960s i think it was just that was just like you said the spirit of the times and i think they all uh, uh, went with it. Okay. I got it. You've mentioned it a couple times now. Monterey Pop. Um, it's it's a bit of an overstatement to say John invented it, John created it. That's the way history has told it. Right. However, here's a question. I mean, even at the time, the Mamas and the Papas, popular, but they sure weren't as popular as a lot of other bands around. Why John Phillips, I the whole way through the book, I kept asking myself, as awful a human being as he is, and half of these interviews is not giving the book away, you know, as right. as bad a human being as he was, why would you hand him such a major undertaking? Why did John Phillips get this? As you know, he was, a, you know, they were hot, uh, the mamas and the papas in, you know, early 67 late 66 when this idea is kind of being kicked around by benny shapiro and alan parasir um the mamas and the papas were were really it they i mean they weren't on the level of the beatles and the stones and that's really who those two guys wanted but they to 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 be the centerpiece of this uh this uh, festival that they were putting together but the beatles had stopped touring and it wasn't really public knowledge yet uh and uh, when they they uh they got Derek taylor who was a former beatles publicist and he was also the birds publicist he had moved to la from london and uh, they got him to help and when he reached out to the beatles they told him quietly that uh listen uh, we're, we're hanging it up for a little while uh, so, and as we all know, the last, con- well, not all of us know, but a lot of us know that uh, the last concert was there in August 66 at Candlestick uh, in San Francisco. And then uh, the Rolling Stones were uh, kind of on a touring hiatus because they were facing some legal troubles. Uh, Keith and uh, Mick had gotten arrested at uh, Keith Redland's home uh, for drugs by uh, the uh, police uh, Commissioner Pilch, Pilcher, <laughs> you know, I think John Lennon mentions him a few times in some songs. I am the uh, walrus. But, right. That's right. And, uh, Norman Pilcher, I think was, I think his name, first name was Norman. Climbing and, up the uh, Eiffel Tower. Yeah. And um, so they were, uh, they weren't able to travel. Uh, they weren't able to get, I think their visas were revoked or something like that or suspended. So they told him that we can't do it either. You know, so uh, Derek Derek Taylor mentioned you got the mamas and the papas right here in town. 
Uh, we can go right up to John Phillips's Bel Air mansion right now and see if he's interested. And, you know, they went up there and it was really kind of a, a you know, a kind of a poker game because they didn't really have anybody booked. They had this, they had the fairgrounds booked. They had this idea. They got Ravi Shankar, um, which I don't know in that time <laughs> it wasn't too hard to get. Uh, yeah. but, um, you know, they got him and, uh, they, when they approached John and John wanted to know, uh, who else was involved, uh, they just kind of said, well, we think Simon and Garfunkel might want to play, you know, just to try to keep it, get his interest peaked. And, uh, as soon as they uh, left, they like beat feet down to, uh, the hotel that the Simon and Garfunkel were staying at. Cause they just happened to be in town playing uh, a live show and uh, set up a meeting with them and, kind of able to get them interested and get him and John together. This all happened in just a couple, in a matter of hours. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it just kind of went from there. And then it, it really, it, even though it wasn't John's idea, originally the idea of it being a nonprofit, uh, you know, and getting the cutting edge artists of the day uh, really were his ideas. Um, you know, I think doing it non uh, not profit was able to get they were able because every you know everybody you know you can use it as a as a tax deduction and all these things and it, you know it makes everybody feel like they're doing something um, and so he was able to get you know the birds and uh, Simon and Garfunkel joined and um, you know canned heat and then they they really went after uh, the San Francisco groups like the Grateful Dead. And, Quicksilver Messenger Service and uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company with Janis Joplin and and a host of really just kind of cutting edge groups. And then, you know, they brought in Andrew Lou Goldham, who was the Rolling Stones manager, who was kind of, uh, he was uh, facing drug charges of his own or he was, was feared he was, and he was kind of a refugee from England. And uh, he was able to direct them to the Who and the Jimi Hendrix Experience, who really weren't doing much here in the States at the time. Uh, but they were uh, they were killing it in in England. You know, you know they both they all they, they both of them had uh, top ten hits after one after the other. So uh, you know, talk about really kind of grabbing onto a bunch of groups uh, just as they're getting ready to explode or about to explode. And I think really the uh, Monterey Pop Festival was able to uh, facilitate that. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's considered so uh, groundbreaking is because they did get all these these great groups that in the 70s went on to be superstars uh, right before they were superstars. Time to take our first break, but we'll be back with author Scott Shea. All the Leaves Are Brown, How the Mamas and the Papas Came Together and Broke Apart on Rock School. So let's talk about this idea. You've mentioned it twice now that the Mamas and the Papas didn't play live very much. When you look up the Mamas and the Papas live, you get either something on the Dick Cavett show or something on Laughing where they're playing to a tape, or you get their 38-minute live set at Monterey Pop. So, mm-hmm. so my question to you is, look, I understand why the Beatles couldn't tour. Every one of us has seen Shea Stadium and the girls wouldn't stop screaming. Right. Why on earth wouldn't the Mamas and the Papas go on a, you know, 35, 40 city tour and play the way the other bands were at the time? You know, they were so fractured 
uh, emotionally, I think, from, uh, you know, because Danny's affair with, uh, well, you can't really call it an affair, it was kind of like a one-night stand, but uh, with his thing with Michelle came to light just, like, weeks after they signed with Dunhill. And it really almost uh, just sunk them before they even started uh, because, you know, here you got now John feels betrayed because his best friend is sleeping with his wife and then Cass feels betrayed because you know, she loved Denny and Michelle knew that and uh, Denny had this unrequited love for her or she, you know, she had unrequited love for Denny and um, and I think that, you know, it was just it was just deep deep wounds that were just really hard to uh, get over. And then, you know, you follow that up with, uh, you know, weeks, um, not just a few months after the whole thing with Denny gets patched over, Michelle starts having an affair with Gene Clark of the birds, not long after he had left the birds. And then that comes to light and John just goes ballistic and kicks her out of the group and replaces her with uh, Jill Gibson, who was dating Lou Adler, his producer at the time. And uh, she had you know she was she was a very musical person she had been uh, uh jan barry of jan and dean's ex-girlfriend uh, for a number of years and she played on his records and even put out a single of her own uh and was a songwriter so and she's also a tall blonde and an ex-model so she <laughs> fit in pretty well right um so you got all that going on and their their touring schedule was so scattershot. They really only toured on weekends. They didn't do a Monday through Friday. Why they didn't do this and why the I, I think the record label wanted them to, but I think they they just kind of held back because uh, because of all this infighting and all these uh, deep wounds everybody had, uh, and just kind of maybe hopefully that would just run its course. But uh, you know, not only you know, I and. They they only played fifty or show fifty or so live performances, but it's, to my knowledge, none of them outside of Monterey has ever been recorded. Like there's not you can't find like a Mama's and the Papa's bootleg out there, you know. So some audience recording from like Denver or something, you know, where uh, you you can even find that stuff for group. You know, mm -hmm. I, I I just found one the other day of Neil Diamond at the bottom uh, or at the at the uh, bitter end in 1967. I was there's like an audience recording. I was listening to it. I was fascinated. You know, and um, it, it's uh, like it's 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 quite surprising to me and, and shocking that uh, that that didn't happen. But again, I think I think it was just all all that uh, all that baggage and uh, really just kind of like I said before, a little bit of laziness and resting on your laurels. You made it. You got to the top, and now you just kind of kind of coast. Yeah, let me let me go one step farther with Monterey. There's okay. two things you hit hard in the book, and one of them is this new kid, Jimi Hendrix, to the point where Pete Townsend, Pete Townsend, was scared of him and <laughs> flipped a coin. And I've heard stories of, I think it was Clapton meeting with, uh, meeting with McCartney in a movie theater saying, we're done, look at this. That's, that's one level. The second level was there's a famous piece of video where Janis Joplin completes a song. It might have been Take a Little Piece of My Heart. But then the camera pans right to Mama Cass and she goes, wow. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. She yeah. is blown off the back door. Did, did Phillips basically showcase the new people and doom himself by doing so? Yeah, that's kind of the uh, 
the um, conclusion I came to, you know, uh, he, I, he really did. He really, you know, John was a music lover. I know uh, a lot of people, especially the L.A., the San Francisco bands, when they were courting him, they were very leery of John and Lou uh, because the, the Grateful Dead and the and Big Brother and uh, all these other groups, they fancied themselves as like purists, you know, like we're just in it to make music and we don't want to make money which you know that's a line of bs they all wanted to make money but uh you know uh but you know i think to some degree they did feel that way uh but uh john was a, he was he loved music he loved making music he loved he wanted to do something like this with with folk music you know he he really looked down on rock and roll or the beatles when they came he was not a rock and roll fan uh and so when he did finally adapt to rock and roll and did a, a big played a big part in making it more sophisticated um you know he really wanted to showcase the talent i think he really had an eye and an ear and he listened to people uh i think this is something he didn't really do until you know denny doherty turned it really finally convinced him that the beatles were were really a great band and, and kind of changed his mind and he listened to people and you know he was very open and um yeah he brought in some really great groups uh and uh yeah i think like i said before it just it kind of doomed it, you know you sang harmony after 1967 after the summer of love you were kind of uh, considered square you know yeah. uh, and uh mamas and papas didn't have a time to recover with that uh, properly um but uh yeah he really did and, and like you know, you got all the, you got the who, the who, and Hendrix and Janis Joplin, and it's really setting up the next days of rock and roll, and it's really fascinating to see. And I think that's a big part of the reason why we're still talking about Mama, uh, the Monterey Pop Festival in 2023. mentioned him twice already of the four mamas and papas it's Danny Doherty who receives not a lot in the book uh, the the biggest thing I kept getting was he was an alcoholic he was an alcoholic who in the world was Danny Doherty and why didn't he register was he just up against too pretty too talented too good a singer well, it's funny because um, I, I, I asked myself that the same question, like, boy, Denny really kind of fades away. You know, I mean, you, you read about him with the Halifax Three and, 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 and the pre-mamas and the papas, and he's very, very involved. But I think the fade away in my book matches what happened in reality, where he just kind of faded into the background. He was in love with Michelle, um, and he wanted to go away with her, and he wanted her to be with him, and uh, and he knew that that wasn't going to happen, and he just really kind of became an alcoholic and, and, and faded into the background. Just He bought that house, and um, he didn't, uh, didn't really leave it much. Uh, they partied. Uh, even after the mamas and the papas, he didn't he didn't venture out too many times, and I think it's kind of that you know it's kind of validated by the lack of a solo career for him. I mean, here we have, in my opinion, one of the greatest rock and roll tenors of the 1960s. I mean, Denny had a great rock and roll voice when you listen to those songs, and it just blows me away. And 
uh, how well suited he was for for folk rock. Mm. And it's just kind of, it's almost it's 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 kind of tragic. He put out a couple solo albums um and uh that was it. You know, he never really recorded again after the mid 70s. Uh you know, it may be a couple things here and there singing background uh, but uh, you know, and then uh, I think he he was on that uh that uh, kids show in you know in Canada. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, he did some acting, but uh, again, I, I it's, it's it's and I even talked with his former bandmate and uh, and uh, Pat McCroy who was with him in the Halifax Three and they kept in touch, uh, you know, all through his life, and uh, just to get kind of verification on that. And he he kind of uh, backed me up on that. He said, yeah, he really he really didn't do much after that. Uh, you know, he said he would visit him a couple times, and it was very uh, it was very sad. See, I mean, I, and I think at some point, you know, he you know he got back with John in the in the nineteen eighties, and they did the new Mamas and papas and he got sober and uh and i think he just kind of lived a, a rather quiet life you know i uh I, I looked into the background of some of his uh he, he he had much older siblings and uh you know they they all lived rather peaceful quiet lives i know they you know i think his sisters were involved in the church choir you know up till to, to, to the time they died and uh you know, things like that so i i think i i th- I think he lived a very quiet, unassuming life after the fame died down, uh, after all that happened with Michelle. And I think, you know, I think he was happy with that. I think that was fine, fine by him. And he was able to do a lot of documentaries. You know, you, any documentary on the 1960s or the group that came out, you know, in the 80s, 90s, he was always there talking about the good old days. So, yeah, uh, yeah it is interesting, though. He does fade away. And I, it's, it's kind of a sad thing. It's almost like John Sebastian. John Sebastian's uh, lack of a solo so successful solo career has always been kind of baffling to me. Yeah, well, he did have the one hit, isn't it? Welcome back from Welcome Back, Cotter. Yeah, and I would yeah. expect that he would have like ten hits. Yeah, <laughs> you know? no, you're right, you're right, you're right. Hey, speaking of solo careers, of the four of them, Cass was the one that had it. Her her version of Ella Fitzgerald's "Dream a Little Dream of Me." I'll make you about a hundred people if you ask them. Wouldn't know that that was an Ella Fitzgerald song first, before she did it. She was, in my opinion, the best voice in the group. I get it. Michelle was very pretty. Blah blah blah. I think uh-huh. Cass was the best voice in the group. Yet, you make the statement multiple times in the book that Phillips would. I don't know how else to say it. Mix her out. He would either make her voice an echo or pull it out of the albums completely. Why on earth would you take away the best voice in the group? Well, he didn't do that when they were having the hits. He did do that on their final album, uh, People Like Us, which I think was just a dreadful mistake. I I don't know why he did it. Uh, Maybe maybe there was jealousy there because Cass was kind of rolling. She was the most successful of them all. Um, she, I mean, and, you know, her solo career wasn't like profoundly successful. Like it wasn't like she was, uh, you know, dominating the top ten. But she was, you know, on talk shows a lot, and her face was everywhere. And I, you know, had she lived, I think she probably would have been a, a you know, a pioneering talk show host slash singer. You know, uh, for you know, first female talk show host or something like that. I could imagine. Um, but yeah, he did mix her out of the the final album, which is kind of. 
you know, again, just a mystery to me. And that's the only thing I can think of because um, it's that's really kind of your key ingredient. Cass is soaring contralto, uh, going over everybody and lifting the group up into the air, into the ether. Um, that uh, it's it's almost like the birds, uh, you know, Roger McGuinn's 12 string Rickenbacker was kind of like the birds. Uh, that was their thumbprint or their fingerprint, I should say. Yeah. And then, you know, they, they had a reunion album in in the early 70s as well where the original five got back together and David Crosby produced it and he mixed out the 12 string. You know, it's like, what? well, wait a minute. <laughs> it's like you're taking your key, the key element and, and taking it away. You can, you can, if you listen really hard, you can hear it buried down there in the mix. But uh, it's the same thing with Cass. And, you know, uh, about seven years ago, uh, Universal released re-released the album as part of a, a, a anthology package and uh, that somebody remixed it and, and lifted Cass's uh, vocals back up and you know it's kind of nice to hear uh, you know her singing along on those songs and in place where she should have been um, but uh, yeah that's it's a weird thing and I, I you know the only and I you know obviously it's just a you know it's just a guess I'm just spitballing it here but I don't think I'm I'm that far off the mark when I said John <laughs> John did it because he didn't you know he still didn't like Cass very much that's too bad It's time to take our second break and allow our affiliates to play their commercials, but we'll be back with author Scott Shea, All the Leaves are Brown, How the Mamas and the Papas Came Together and Broke Apart, on Rock School. What killed the band? Did it, was it just attrition or in your, and again, I'm going to compliment you once again. Uh, the, the book is academically written. It is so, so well researched. I, I was shocked when I found that you weren't a professor. <laughs> what do you think was the straw that ended it for good period? That's the end. You know, when they made that fourth album, uh, they all just kind of went their separate ways. There was no real, like, "Uh, we're done. This is over, you know. But uh, I think, you know, the end of John and and Michelle's marriage was one one thing. Uh, And then Cass wanted to, Cass wanted to move away. I think she, she wanted a solo career. She had surrounded herself with a lot of people. You know, the people said you you can do better without them. You don't need them. Um, And, you know, her relationship with John had deteriorated. You know, when they went to England uh, in the late summer, early fall, uh, 1967 and she was arrested uh, because of an unpaid hotel bill or something yeah. like that you know some really another Pilcher trumped up charge of course this was in Sam Hat- Southampton so I don't think I can blame it on Pilcher but um, you know it was a trumped up charge and they were actually really trying to look for her, her bo- one of her boyfriends uh, uh, Pick Dawson who had become a drug smuggler and was on uh, Interpol's radar but um you know, uh, John, she and John had gotten into an argument um, there, and uh, it, everybody kind of just went their separate ways. And uh, they were able to get together to finish that last album. They did "Dream a Little Dream of Me," which um, uh, was—I know you said—a lot of people had done the version of that song. The, the very first hit version of that song, believe it or not, was by Ozzy Nelson huh. of 
of Ozzy and Harriet, Ricky Nelson's father. In fact, it's funny because if you watch old episodes of the of the, the Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet, you'll hear "Dream a Little Dream of Me" playing as kind of like incidental music, you know? No kidding. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, yeah. So you know, again, John was kind of he. he has struggled to write an album's worth of material so he was always kind of uh, relying on uh, cover songs and dream a little dream that he came to him because uh, michelle's father was friends with uh, one of the songwriters a guy named fabian andre and um had uh, was talking to john about it one night over dinner when he came to visit them and it just kind of uh, got john's mind going you know he had made dedicated to the one i love which was a cover version but he really made it sound like a john phillips originally wanted to do the same thing with dream a little dream of me and uh you know it i think abc uh, which had, had purchased dunhill was um I think they saw the writing on the wall. I think they saw that John wasn't delivering enough product and it was like, we should just focus on Cass. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Dream a Little Dream of Me was kind of credited as a Mamas and Papas song and a a Mama Cass song. Uh, I think it was eventually released as Mama Cass with the Mamas and the Papas. And, uh, And that just... You know, solidified her record deal and she made a bunch uh, with um, with Dunhill and then moved on to RCA and uh, you know I think I think once she got you know she she got a Vegas show which which really bombed but uh, nevertheless it gave her a nice little payday so uh, I think she was uh, very happy uh, that uh, to 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 do a solo career um i don't think she probably ever would have gotten back with john at least in the near john and all the rest in the in the in the foreseeable future you know with with a with their solo career going the way it was and they were only brought back together because uh they had a another album they had to complete uh based on their contract and uh the dunhill uh, threatened to sue them for a million dollars so it would have been two hundred fifty thousand dollars each which i don't know adjusting for inflation that's probably close to a million dollars each in today's dollars you know probably yeah um so uh i I think really Cass's solo career and uh john's relationship and with uh michelle deteriorating and then john's increasing drug use i think really uh stifled him uh and is one of the one of the things that that killed the group for sure poor mama Cass. even in death it was a fat joke. Yep. Yeah. No, she didn't die from choking on a ham sandwich. There was one in the room, but she died of a, a cardiac arrest. She had a heart attack. Right. That's that, that's sad. Yeah, it was heart failure. You know, brought on by she had been doing these uh, diets, these really extreme diets, where she had you know dropped like a hundred pounds in a very short period of time and then she would put the weight back on and then do another one of these diets and they were you know they weren't good for you it's not good for you to lose that much weight that quickly and um it uh coupled with her drug use and uh, you know her years of drug use and uh, and her weight it, it was it contributed to heart failure and yeah she died uh while she was uh, in london at the uh let's take it, i can't remember if it was the Palladium, it might have been the palladium or the hammersmith odeon or one of the places where she played uh and for like two weeks and was just killing it you know every night and uh i know right before she passed away one of her last phone calls was to michelle uh because they had gotten close after the group broke up uh, they both had 
two young children uh, and lived in L.A. and they would often stroll their babies together and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, told her how great it was and, you know, she was ready to come home and all that stuff. And she was at Harry, Harry Nielsen's apartment in, in London and um, she just uh, passed away in her sleep. And uh, we lost one of the, the yeah, I know you said a greatest singer in the group. She's one of the greatest singers of that uh, generation. I'll buy you that. Know, she, yeah. She uh, for sure was, you know, so like, you know, I, I think of the great singers and I think of, uh, you know, Cass Elliott and Roy Orbison um, and, uh, you know, there's so many, you know, there's not so many there's you know jay black of jay and the americans you know people like that just that can that just have this these booming voices that uh they any that could have sung uh in any period uh in in the history of of mankind with uh with that voice and been successful and been revered and uh she was certainly one of them, and she lifted the uh, lifted the group up. Uh, you know, when you have, you know, John was such a great song arranger and writer, and when you have somebody like Cass Elliot to make your songs sound better, I mean, that's that's a real diamond, it's a real star in your crown, and uh, it's uh, they they he was blessed to have her, and we were blessed uh, by their combination because we got a lot of great music out of it that we're still talking about all these years later. I'm well, still listening to. At least we are. The name of the book is All the Leaves Are Brown, How the Mamas and the Papas Came Together and Broke Apart. And again, one of the one things one of the things I don't want to do on this show is give the book away. It's so thick, we've probably hit 15% of it. <laughs> and it's all yeah. good. The author, Scott Shea, I can't thank you enough for spending an hour with me. Uh, I appreciate you doing so. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Joe. And, you know, for uh, your listeners, they can uh, go to my website, scottsheaauthor.com. That's Shea spelled S-H-E-A. It'll take you to links where you can buy the book. It'll link you to all my socials. Please follow me at Instagram and Facebook and, and uh, Twitter. And uh, uh, I try to post every day. I try to post either a little factoid about the mamas and the papas or about music in general. Excellent. So, Scott, I can't thank you enough. Appreciate it. Talk with me for an hour. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All the leaves are brown.